tonight is going to be a DE episode. It's going to be a little bit of a brain workout. So let's do some stretches. You know how you stretch before you go and work out at the gym? And if you don't, you usually wind up with a pulled muscle, right? Well, we need to stretch our brain a little bit to prepare for tonight's deep episode because we're going to be dealing with some science. We're going to be dealing with issues that are going to sort of really work your brain. So let's start with a very simple brain exercise, a very simple question. You ready for this? Which is heavier, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers? Simple question, right? Which is heavier, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers? Just go ahead and pause the podcast and sit and think about it for a little bit. Let your brain work. Get you an answer and turn the podcast back on. You back? All right. So which is heavier, a pound of gold or a pound of feathers? Now, at first blush, people will tend to say a pound is a pound the world around. Unfortunately, that's not true. You see, a pound of feathers is heavier than a pound of gold. And the reason for this is we have to have context. I gave you context, but if you don't understand the context, you might need more context. The context is gold versus feathers. If you understand the context behind the measure of gold versus the measure of feathers, this makes perfect sense. But if you're given the context of just gold versus feathers, and you're not given any of the the back information, you'll tend to make a mistake. The point in this exercise is we tend to do this a lot. We'll take what we know from our own experience and make assumptions and try to apply what we already know to everything. But the problem is, is when you do that, you're wrong most of the time. If you understand the context and you do a little research and you understand the time in which something is taking place or the measure system that's applied to this or that, If you understand more of the context, you'll make fewer errors. So why is a pound of feathers heavier than a pound of gold? The reason is, is feathers are not precious metals. And so they're measured in a type of pound called avoirdupois. Now, we use the avoirdupois pound all the time. We just don't ever call it avoirdupois, but that's the proper name. The avoirdupois pound is made from 16 avoirdupois ounces. The base measure for weight is the grain, at least in this system. It's not in you know, metric, obviously, but in this non-metric system, United States customary measures, the British imperial measures, grains were the foundation of the, of the weight system. 
And what we find is that an avoirdupois ounce is 437.5 grains. There's 16 of them in an avoirdupois pound. So it totals as 7,000 grains is an avoirdupois pound. And that's how you measure non-precious metals. Precious metals aren't measured in avoirdupois. They're measured in troy. There are 12 ounces in a troy pound. The troy ounce is 480 grains. So when you total that up, the troy pound is 5,760 grains. So, I could have asked this question a different way. Which is heavier, an ounce of gold or an ounce of feathers? And it would have been just the opposite answer. Because a troy ounce is 480 grains and a voidupois ounce is 437.5 grains. So an ounce of gold is heavier than an ounce of feathers. But the avoirdupois pound is 7,000 grains and the troy pound is 5,760 grains. So a pound of feathers is heavier than a pound of gold. It's all in the context. And it's all about expanding your knowledge beyond what you already know. In fact, I could have, answered, I could have asked this question in any number of ways because at one point in history you could have run into London pounds, merchant pounds, tower pounds, avoirdupois pounds, troy pounds, or apothecary pounds. A pound is not a pound the world around. That's an assumption. And so with that, we'll start tonight's episode. You got your brain flexed? You got your, your brain up and limber? Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Sounds simple enough, right? But is it simple? Take a cursory reading of Genesis and everything marches on hunky-dory. But the hunky and the dory end if you stop to think about what's actually being said for more than about five seconds. Now, Scripture says that the angels cheered as God laid the cornerstone of the universe in Job chapter 38. So when did God create the angels? Genesis says that God stretched the dimension we call space-time on the second day of creation. So where was the earth created in verse 1 if there was no space-time to put it in? God created light, but it doesn't mention matter yet matter comes into being. What does physics reveal about the relationship of matter and light? Was the creation of light, the creation of matter and space-time all at the same time? Genesis hides the answers to these mysteries in plain sight, but it took modern science to decode the Bible code of creation. Tonight we'll embark on a deep end episode and begin laying the foundations needed to fully understand the creation as laid out in Genesis. What Genesis says is not simple at all. It's complicated, it's complex, and it's mind-bending at times. But God reveals much of what He did. So, grab an aspirin or an antacid 
and settle down as we do a deep dive into the mysteries of the creation and challenge the orthodoxies laid down by a scientifically challenged church that have obscured what God actually says. Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your host on this journey through the history and debates surrounding the Bible. Tonight we'll be preparing to look at Genesis and we'll be delving into the start of the creation of the world. We'll be spending some time on this because there's a lot to cover. One of the biggest issues we have is in using vocabulary properly. So we'll be spending quite a bit of time looking into vocabulary and comparing the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Masoretic Texts. We'll also be delving a lot into the science. Okay, We're going to have to understand a lot of the science. And before we start examining Genesis, we've got to deal with some issues and with some scholarly debates and that get thrown around concerning Genesis. So this episode tonight will, con will concern a lot of the front matter that we need to deal with so we can start to talk intelligently about what Genesis is saying and get a grip on some of the most basic concepts of vocabulary and the fundamental nature of reality that physics has revealed and how that deepens our understanding of Genesis. So, yep, fair warning, there's sciencey stuff ahead. But it's going to prepare you for a deeper understanding of what Genesis is talking about. Now the first thing we need to deal with is we need to deal with the concept of Bible codes. People ask, are there codes in the Bible? Yes. Yes, there are. Good enough? Great. All right. So let's start talking about the nature of reality. Okay. Really bad joke. I'll admit that. Really bad joke. I'm going to have to spend a little more time on Bible codes. There was a big hoopla about Bible codes oh, a few years ago. And if you're an old fuddy-duddy like me, you'll, you'll remember this. I, I believe it was around 1997 when the book called The Bible Code was published. It sparked a lot of controversy and a few, and I want to say Discovery Channel, it may not. It may have been, uh, it, it may have been History Channel or Science Channel is one of those Discovery Channel type networks made at least two documentaries on it in the early 2000s, The Bible Code and The Bible Code 2. Now, there were some kind of contrived sounding things and some things in there that frankly sort of stretched the limit of credulity. There was even one Bible code that they showed that if they looked at a matrix in a certain way, the Bible code, if you drew it out it, it, on the matrix, it kind of looked like a rocket ship and it had something to do with nuclear weapons. Sounds a little hokey, right? Well, because of that and because of some of the contrived things that they, they, they seem to come up with, a lot of the Bible code stuff got ignored. Well, the problem is, is there is a real set of codes in the Bible. And the rabbis have known about it for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, the rabbis got so good at looking for codes in the Bible that they actually started a lot of the cryptography that was later used by the European kings after the fall of Rome. You know, after the fall of Rome, all these 
guys started being little warlords and then carving themselves out petty little kingdoms and then you wind up with a modern kingdom well I say modern but I mean within the you know the the dark ages middle ages and through that you you wind up with the with these kingdoms sprouting up here there and everywhere and one of the biggest things that kingdoms like to do is spy on their neighbors and that's been as old as time and one of the things that happened is is these rabbis would actually develop a lot of the cryptography that these spies for these various European kings used. It's kind of ironic, but you know, during these these middle you know these middle times, these medieval times, these sort of dark ages, all this stuff. During all these times of these kingdoms, a lot of them were anti-Semitic, but they sure used those rabbis to 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 sort of develop their spy craft. So kind of a dichotomy going on there. But frankly, that shortchanges the rabbis, saying, oh, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, they developed all this cryptography because of their expertise in looking for Bible codes. That shortchanges them because it goes back before that even. Okay? They, they were looking for codes in the Bible at the time of Yeshua and before. So, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, maybe even 5,000 years ago, the Jews were looking for codes in the scriptures. Since the time Moses laid the scriptures on a table and said, this is what I wrote, this is what God told me to say. From that point forward, they started looking for codes in the Bible. And the rabbis will tell you that everything that is, was, or ever will be is located somewhere in the Torah. The Torah. The Torah. That's the first five books of the First Testament the five books of Moses. Just in the first five books of Moses, the rabbis will tell you everything that is, was, or ever will be is in there somewhere. You just have to find it. And so they learned this cryptography. They developed this cryptography. And there are some legends out there, I'm sure, that, that will attribute it to some person or another. I, you know, some, I've heard some people say, oh, you know, the first, the first you know, code breaker of the Bible was probably Solomon. Well, that's a nice guess. You know, he had the wisdom of the East, the wisdom of the West. He had, you know, all the wisdom of the world that was granted to him, you know, from, from God. As a popular radio show host, uh, Rush Limbaugh used to say, talent on loan from God, right? Solomon had talent on loan from God. And it's a good guess that he may have started looking for codes in the Bible. But there's no record of that. It may have been before him. It may have been. We don't know. But it was ancient. And that still shortchanges people. Because I will guarantee you that coding went back to the pharaohs too. I'm sure the pharaohs had spies that they were using against the Nubians. They were using against the Assyrians. They were using against the Canaanites. I guarantee you the pharaohs had some kind of cryptography of some kind. As if that hieroglyphic language of theirs wasn't cryptography enough, right? But cryptography goes back thousands of years. Back in the 1500s, a rabbi named Moses Cordovaro stated that the secrets of the Torah are revealed in the skipping of letters. So equidistant letter sequencing was talked about in the 1500s, but it goes back even then. 
And that's something that the Bible Code book in the 1990s and then the Bible Code documentaries talked about as equidistant letter sequencing. And they presented it as if this was something new. Well, Rabbi Cordovaro was talking about it in the 1500s, and he learned it from people before him, and the Jews have been doing that for umpteen years. And literally, God only knows how long they've been looking for codes in the Bible. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to state this very plainly, and I don't want to offend people, but I, you know, I've just got to point out inconsistencies. There are Bible-believing, Bible-thumping Christians who say, I believe that if the Word of God says it, then that is the truth. And they'll say that. But then you talk about codes in the Bible, and they'll say that you're in league with the devil, and that you are saying that God is a liar, and that you're a false teacher, and that you need to pray and get right with God because God can't lie and hiding something is a lie. Well, don't let your kids hear me say this. Hiding something's not always a lie. Don't let your kids hear me say that. <laughs> right? I've got kids. I know. I don't want my kids to hide anything from me. But hiding something's not always a lie. And you know how I know? God says so. Look at Proverbs 25, verse 2. Here's the Masoretic text. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Septuagint. The glory of God conceals a matter, but the glory of kings honors things. That's one, that's one translation of, of, a, of one version of Septuagint. Here's another Septuagint version. Septuagint. God has glory in what he conceals. Kings have glory in what they can fathom. Unfortunately, the Dead Sea Scrolls doesn't seem to have this proverb. Let's look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. This is Moses. Now, some people will say, well, you know, the Proverbs, that was Solomon, and Solomon is saying that. And this is some of these, these, these Bible-believing Christians. You start presenting that God has secret things, that God conceals things, and they'll start trying to find a way around it. I find that very ironic and very frustrating at times, but it's true. But then you point out, well, it's not just Solomon saying this. Look at Deuteronomy. And they still want to try to hem and haw. So then you say, all right, let's look at Job. You know, and, and, and let me tell you about Job. Job is a book that is so hard for me to just not dive right into. I, I wanted to start my podcast with Job. And I, and I keep saying, no, don't do that, don't do that. Job, Job's, Job's too thick. You know, it's, a, it's, not, it's a rather relatively short book, but conceptually it's very thick. And it's just a lot of deep stuff in Job. And it's, it's, too, it's too thick of a book to start your podcast with. But there's so much in Job. There is so much in Job. God puts people in their place. It is a 
verbal, if you want to call it that, because God's speaking. He's not, you know, he's not literally smacking people down. But it is a verbal smackdown that goes on in several places in Job. God gives Job a science quiz at one point and just puts everybody in their place. Now, before I get into God putting people in their place, I'm going to point out something. God takes great offense at Job's friends because they don't speak about God rightly. You know, what's sort of funny here is there's a lot of assuming going on in Job. You know, Job is a great lesson in the folly of assumption because his, his friends are assuming this and assuming that and they don't speak of him very well because they, their assumption is you're a wealthy man so you couldn't have been godly anyway. And so they're thinking, well, you're, you've been reduced to this state because you weren't as godly as you said. And so there's a lot of assumption going on. What's interesting is that Zophar in chapter 11 says something that's actually pretty profound and pretty right about God. And if he had just said this and shut up, he probably would have been okay. He says in, in chapter 11, verse 7, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? And this verse gets pointed at a lot, talking about that you know God does have deep things. We can't understand God. And it's true. And if Zophar would have said that and shut up, things might have been okay. But... Um, course he goes on and he makes assumptions about Job and opens mouth inserts foot and chews vigorously but what we're really concerned with about God and his and his secrets or the fact that that we can't know everything about God we're going to start in chapter 38 and I'm not going to read all of this but chapter 38 39 40 and 41 is God giving a science quiz to Job and just putting Job and everybody that reads this in their place. I'm going to skip around a little bit. But God starts out answering Job in chapter 38. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now get this next statement. If you say this today, people are, are going to crawl all over you and your toxic masculinity. But listen to what God says. Here's a Masoretic text. Now prepare yourself like a man. If you look in the Septuagint, he says, gird your waist like a man. In other words, put on your big boy pants. Here it comes. God tells Job to take this like a man. I think that's very interesting. He says, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you? This is Masoretic. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, that's Benechai Elohim, sons of God, shouted for joy. Remember, Benech Elohim is an interesting phrase in Hebrew. It is only used of a direct creation of God in Hebrew. It's only used for Adam himself 
and the angels. Okay? When it's in the plural, it's always a reference to angels. Alright? That was Masoretic. Here's Septuagint. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the stars were made and my angels praised me in a loud voice? So God is, is saying, where were you? Do you have this knowledge? He's, he's stating very plainly, you don't have this knowledge. You don't know. He goes on. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds as its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, this far you will come and no farther, and here your proud waves will stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I mean, this is God putting in His place. But you hear a theme here. What do you know? There are things beyond your understanding. He continues this throughout this long science quiz. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades? That's interesting. We'll actually come back to that in a later lesson. Or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Can you guide the great bear and its cubs? He's talking about the constellations at this point. He says, what do you know about the constellations? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? He says in the very next verse. By the way, I started that. That's chapter 38, starting in verse 31, going through 33. Can you set their dominion on the earth? So do you know the ordinances of the heavens? God is clearly saying throughout this missive to Job about how ignorant he is that he doesn't know everything, that God's not revealed everything to humanity. He clearly says he has secrets and we don't know them. We've not been told. So the Bible has secrets in it. And it's our job to try to seek them out according to one reading of Proverbs 25.2. Deuteronomy and Job also point out that God has secret things, many beyond our understanding, but others that we should seek out. Now, I'm not going to go into the complexities of Bible codes here, but I'm going to talk about a few of them. You know, we mentioned the equidistant letter sequencing that Rabbi Moses Cordovaro mentioned back in the 1500s, and that the Bible code talked about. Well, I'll give you an example of one, and it's one that's used very often. It's used in a lot of seminaries. There's a lot of pastors with stuff on the Internet that point to this code when they talk about Bible codes. If you look in the first five books of Moses, and you look at the book of Leviticus, you see something very strange. If you start doing, if you start at various places in Leviticus and start doing seven-letter skips, you'll find the Hebrew equivalent of YHWH, which is the unpronounceable name of God in a seven-letter skip pattern. All right, you'll see that in one of the in one of the patterns. But if you look at Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you don't see it. You don't see a seven-letter skip pattern with the name of God there. 
to interesting. But if you do a seven times seven letter skip, starting with the first Tav you run across, you see Torah spelled forwards in Genesis and Exodus and backwards in Numbers and Deuteronomy. Tav, Vav, Resh, and Hay, which is Torah. If you lay the scriptures out in order, and you're looking in the Hebrew, by the way, so you know it's the opposite of our direction. We read left to right, they, they read right to left. If you put them out in order, it looks like Torah is spelled frontwards, pointing toward Leviticus, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, it's spelled backwards, so that way when you lay it out, it points toward Leviticus. So it appears that the word Torah is pointing to the letter skip of Yahweh in Leviticus. So it's a seven-letter skip in Leviticus and a seven-times seven-letter skip in Genesis and Exodus, the word Torah pointing toward Yahweh, and then also a seven-times seven-letter skip in Numbers and Deuteronomy with it pointing backwards toward Leviticus. That's what it looks like. Sounds like a coincidence, but when you get a statistician involved, they'll start telling you that the odds of this happening by chance and still having a text that reads and makes sense is extremely long. This shows evidence of design, statistically. Well, that's interesting. There are other codes in the Bible, though, that aren't letter skip codes. Equidistant letter sequencing isn't the only code you find in the Bible. If you look at the names of the patriarchs, you start getting coded messages. Now, we're not going to do all of them. We're going to save some of them. But we'll, we'll go ahead and do the first ones through Noah. And the patriarchs we have through Noah are Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. And if you look at what their names mean, you wind up with a code. Adam means man. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal, as in you're mortal, you're going to die. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel is interesting because it means the praise of God. And we'll talk about that here first, just for a second. Let's talk about it. Mahalalel is the praise of God. Who else is the praise of God? Yeshua. One of the names that can be used for Yeshua, of course we know son of man, right? That's one. Seed of the woman is another reference to Yeshua, or can be. But also the praise of God. And there's two schools of thought on that. One, because Yeshua is the Redeemer, and so his entire life is literally a praise of God. That's one way it's used. The other way it's used is God praises Yeshua and his baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And so the praise of God becomes a kenning, a metaphorical name for someone. For example, kennings, if you heard my one of my previous ep episodes, I talked about kennings. I talked about kennings when I talked about Goliath. But for example, Beowulf. Beowulf is a kenning. The character of Beowulf in, in the saga of Beowulf his name means bear. Bayo means bee, as in honeybee. And wolf is a wolf. So what is a wolf or predator of bees? A bear. That's a kenning. It's a metaphorical name that means a certain noun. Okay? 
Mahalalel means the praise of God. It's a kinning for Yeshua. All right. Jared means shall descend. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech means lamentation or despair. And Noah is rest or comfort. So, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. You string their meanings together and you get man is appointed mortal sorrow. Right? He will die. The praise of God shall descend teaching or as a teacher. His death shall bring the lamenting or despairing comfort or rest. The first names of the patriarchs of the patriarchs of the Bible through Noah is a prophecy of the coming and the crucifixion and death and resurrection of Yeshua. There's your Bible code. The rest of the patriarchs, there's also codes associated with that. We'll get to that when we get there. All, right, all, things, all, all things in their time, right? The odds of that happening, by the way, with just the names through Noah are long. It doesn't happen by chance. That happening by chance is extremely unlikely. This was designed. So suffice it to say, there are codes in the Bible. And there's an ongoing effort to uncover them. So one other code that I'll talk about before we leave this, this subject can actually be found in 1 Kings 7.23 in the Masoretic text. It is Third Kingdoms in the Septuagint. Okay? And let me, let me just go ahead and line this out while I'm on this subject. Masoretic text. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Same books, different names. Septuagint, 1 Kingdoms, 2 Kingdoms, 3 Kingdoms, 4 Kingdoms. Dead Sea Scrolls, Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Now why is that? Well, first kingdoms and second kingdoms are the same as first and second Samuel. Okay? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, there is no first and second Samuel. The two books are combined as one book and just called Samuel. So you have four books in the Masoretic, four books in the Septuagint, just different names. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, Septuagint, first and second kingdoms, third and fourth kingdoms. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, you have the same verses, same scriptures, but 1st and 2nd Samuel is just Samuel. It's crammed together as one book. And then you get 1st and 2nd Kings. So just understand that, okay? Because if I go back and forth between translations, a lot of times this can be confusing. But in 3rd Kingdoms 7.23, we have a little bit of a problem when we look at 1st Kings 7.23. Because when it gets translated into Greek, the Septuagint actually loses a Bible code here. But there is a Bible code in 1 Kings 7.23 of the Masoretic Text. And in this, in this verse, it's talking about Solomon making a molten sea. And it's 10 cubits wide, 5 cubits high, and the circumference is 30 cubits. Well, right there, there's a problem. We're talking about circumference. The assumption is that it's a, a round circumference. 
And you can't have 10 cubits wide and have 30 cubit circumference. You can't have a diameter of 10 and get a circumference of 30. Because as you know, you have to have the diameter times pi as the circumference. So some people have tried to say, oh, here's an error in the Bible. Well, maybe not. It's an interesting point, but the Masoretic text was altered over time. We talked about that when I talked about the episode about the mysteries of Goliath, that the height of Goliath gets altered in the Masoretic text and inflated to six cubits in a span when the oldest text, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint, have him at four cubits in a span. And there's some intermediate texts in there that have him at five cubits in a span. So we actually see a progression of Goliath being enlarged. Okay? So we know the Masoretes edited the Bible. But sometimes they left things, which is what they should have done with everything, sometimes they left things the way they were and glossed what they thought the correction should be. Now, what, am I, what do I mean by glossed? When you have a work and then you write in the margins commentary, that is called a gloss. So in this verse in 1 Kings of the Masoretic Text, he's talking about making this molten sea. Now let me define the molten sea. It's not a flaming cauldron of death. Okay? He is not making a flaming cauldron of death. It's a molten sea because what he's making is a giant tub. A 10 cubit wide tub. So it would have been, if, if it was the Egyptian cubit they were using, which was 20 and 5 eighths inches, if it's, if it's 10 cubits wide, then that's about 200 and something inches, okay? So it's a, it's a fairly wide tub here. It's a molten sea because he casts it out of metal. He melts metal down and he casts it out of metal. It's not a flaming cauldron of death. What this is is a mikvah. A mikvah is a pool for the kanachim, the priests, to perform ritual cleansing rites. When they, before they went in to the temple or the tabernacle, they had to ritually cleanse themselves. And this mikvah is what they would do it in. So Solomon makes a metal mikvah for the priests. What's interesting is what we see in the Hebrew is we see that the word for circumference in Hebrew is misspelled in the Hebrew Masoretic text. And, and this is one of the cases where the Masoretes didn't just change something, they actually glossed it. They left the misspelling and in a gloss they put to the side that they think this is a misspelling that it should have been kof and vav because the misspelling is spelled kof, vav, hey. It's spelled with three Hebrew letters, which makes it the word kethiv. The Masoretes note that they thought the word should have been kata, which is kof and vav. Now here you have to understand something about Hebrew. Hebrew is one of those languages where each letter of the alphabet has a numeric value. The value of ker should be 106. That word, ker, should be 106. Because a kof is 100 and a vav is 6. 
you total the, the, the value of those letters together, you get 106. But the value of the word kathiv, because it's a kaf, a vav, and a hay, is 111. Kaf is 100, vav is 6, hay is 5. Now, the rabbis have known about this for a while. The Masoretes may not have, but rabbis have figured this out, and they finally let Christians in on this. There's a code here. If you take the 30 cubits for the circumference that's stated, which is wrong, it can't be right because you've got to factor pi in. But if you take that 30 cubits and you multiply it by a correction factor, where the correction factor is the misspelling divided by the correct spelling, the misspelling's value is 111. If you divide it by what the correct spelling, the correct spelling of Circumference in Hebrew is supposed to be like kere, kaf and vav, which shows 106. So 111 divided by 106 multiplied by this 30 cubit circumference, guess what you come out with? 31.4150943396 Pi is 3.14159265355 blah 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 blah. Most people say 3.14, right? What you see is 31.4, that's 3.14 up by a factor of, of 10, right? So 3.1415. Well, what you get is 31.415. It's accurate to 15 thousandths of an inch. Not bad. It's accurate to 15 thousandths of an inch. Not bad for Solomon in antiquity. There's you another coat. Right there in the Bible. And the rabbis will tell you that this misspelling is there on purpose. That it's not a misspelling. It's a flag that there's something deeper here. Now, unfortunately, we can't verify the misspelling in the Dead Sea Scrolls because the verse is missing. And the Septuagint, as I said, doesn't have it because it was translated into Greek. But assuming that the misspelling was, is there in the Dead Sea Scrolls and it's just gone because of the ants getting to the pages or what have you, this has extremely profound meaning in this code. This shows, without a doubt, there's coding. So, we're going to leave codes for now, and now we're going to talk about another thing that needs to be established, and that's the authorship of the Torah. There was something called the Documentary Hypothesis years ago, where people went through great lengths to try to say Moses didn't write the Torah. I'm going to save you a lot of headache on this, Later scholarship kind of blew their suppositions out of the water. This wasn't even real science. I mean, this was just all supposition stuff. But Yeshua says that Moses wrote the Torah. And not only does he say that, but he says, if you don't believe Moses, you can't believe me. So if Moses didn't write the Torah, Yeshua is not the Christ. Because Yeshua says, if you don't believe Moses, how will you believe me? So there you go.
I mean, what more do you need? Let's get into this. So if you look in your Bibles, and we're going to look in the, in the Second Testament, obviously, and we're going to look at the road to Emmaus, which is in Luke 24, and I'm going to, I'm going to skip the long version of, of, of reading this because the road to Emmaus shows a lot of things there, and I think I'll save that until later, but, but one of the things we see is that Yeshua appears after his crucifixion to two people going to Emmaus. And he shows a rather dark sense of humor here, and I will comment on that. And what I mean by dark sense of humor is not a sense of humor that is at the expense of others who are suffering, but humor about dark things. Because here's a man that was arrested at night. There's a guy's ear lopped off in the process of his arrest. He heals the guy. There may or not, may not have been a resurrection of somebody that night. We'll talk about that when we get to this incident in the Second Testament because there's this guy who's walking around uh, near Gethsemane and there's a graveyard down at the bottom. But There's a guy who's just got a linen cloth wrapped around him which sounds like a body being prepped for burial. So there are some interesting, and Mark, Mark's the only one that mentions him, there's some interesting speculations about who this this person was some there's several schools of thought one of them is that he may have even been somebody that had been resurrected so we'll talk about that there's some interesting speculations on that um, but he goes through this he he's, has an ear you know guy's ear lopped off in front of him he heals the ear he goes through illegal trials illegal trials you cannot try someone after sunset in the Hebrew law he goes through illegal trials he is taken to, to Pilate. Pilate washes his hands. He is sent to be brutalized by the Roman guards. He is beaten so badly that he has internal injuries and internal bleeding, and we know that from the crucifixion because what happens in the crucifixion? Yeshua dies so suddenly it surprises everybody. They can't believe he's dead. The Romans had mastered crucifixion. This is something they don't tell you in church. The Romans could crucify somebody and you would linger there for days if they wanted you to. They could actually post guards there and have them keep, keep giving you water to make you linger for days so you didn't die of dehydration and make you linger for days and suffer. They would do things like this. It all depended on how they crucified you. It all depended on how. They actually crucified people on straight poles. They crucified people on things that look like an X. They cru crucified people on things that look like a, a, a capital letter T, what they call a, a towel cross. They crucified people on a lowercase letter, letter T cross. They crucified people, they, they would crucify people on, on doors and stuff even. I mean, they would, they would just do, they had a, a, a talent for cruelty that was probably not seen again until the Spanish Inquisition. And they would do horrible things, and they would keep people lingering for a very long time. And Jesus dies surprisingly fast. And what we see is one of these soldiers who you'll, we'll find out when we cover the Gospel of Nicodemus, which is an extremely influential gospel in its time, but later was not canonized. In the Gospel of Nicodemus, he is named Longinus, this centurion. He's not named anywhere else in the Bible. 
The term, the name Longinus only comes from the Gospel of Nicodemus. And you can tell how influential the Gospel of Nicodemus was because there are statues in Rome to this day of St. Longinus. So this guy stabs, whether his name was Longinus or not, he stabs Yeshua, and we are told that blood and then water comes out. That's because he had been so injured he was bleeding into his pleural cavity. At least one hemithorax because there's a diaphragm and then there's what they call the mediastinal membranes that form sort of an upside down T in the chest. The diaphragm's on the bottom, then there's this mediastinal membrane in the middle. So the lungs are on two separate sides of the chest separated by membranes with a muscular membrane at the bottom. And these two sides are called the hemithorax. One of the hemithoraces is full of blood. That probably means Yeshua had a collapsed lung. That would explain why he dies so fast. Because they didn't break his legs so he'd suffocate. They were going to, but he's already dead. He dies so fast because he's having trouble breathing. Not just because he's crucified, because he's only working on one lung. And when they stab him, he's been dead for a while. They don't even realize he's dead. They thought maybe he's asleep or passed out or something. They didn't realize he was dead for a while, and we know that because when blood enters the thorax, it starts forming clots, and it clots all over the place. But then after a while, gravity starts pulling the clotted blood, the solids, including the red blood cells, down to the base of the thorax. All right, down to the base of the thoracic cavity is where the red blood cells and the fibrin that forms the clots settle. The blood serum, the liquid part, the water, floats at the top because it's less dense. So when they stab Jesus, the blood clots start coming out first, then the blood serum. But the long story short here is Yeshua has gone through all of this. And on this road to Emmaus, when he hears people talking about it and he asks them, why are you so sad? And they start telling him, well, have you, haven't you heard about all these things? And Yeshua goes, what things? This all happened to him. And he's going, what things? There's a little bit of a dark sense of humor there. And again, I don't mean dark sense of humor in, in, a, in a malicious way. The way we tend to use dark sense of humor today is more for malicious stuff. I don't mean it that way, but it's a, it's a sense of humor about dark things. This all happened to him. He's going, what are you talking about? It shows a little sense of humor there. But for right now, what's most important is that we look at verse 27 of Luke 24. And it says that Yeshua begins to treat them to this Bible study. And he says, beginning at Moshe, which is Moses, and all the prophets... He expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He begins at Moses. He begins at Moses. Need another confirmation? John chapter 5. We'll start with verse 45 and go to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one accusing you, Moshe, Moses, in whom you have hoped. For if you were believing Moshe, 
you would then believe me. For that one, meaning Moses, wrote concerning me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There you go. Yeshua confirms that Moses wrote the Torah. That's all you need. Now, I am going to go back to the works of Moses. We've established the authorship, but I'm going to say a few things about it because there's debates you'll find in, uh, about the works of Moses other than the documentary hypothesis that are kind of interesting. They're not necessarily discrediting Moses in any way, but there's some interesting things and there's some things that you'll hear on the internet that frankly just don't make sense. And you'll, you'll, you'll run across things on the internet where people start sort of pontificating about things and they just don't really know what they're talking about. I, I mean, I hate to say that, but it's true. I mean, let's face it, you can get on the, on the internet and you can find conspiracy theories about, you know, humanoid reptilian creatures called reptilians that form a shadow government and that they're really running our lives. I mean, come on, people, really? I mean, but if you've got people out there seriously trying to convince people that there's, you know, reptile people controlling our government, it should come as no surprise that you're going to find some wackadoodle theories about the Bible, okay? But, having said that, some people are going to say that some of the stuff I talk about is probably wackadoodle too. So I guess since I live in a glass house, I probably shouldn't throw stones, right? But, uh, <laughs> but we'll go on. I'm going to talk to you about some of these things you'll run across here or there. I've, some of these I've found on the internet. Some of these are, are things that have just been espoused by people in conversations that I don't know where they get some of this. But here we go. There are five recognized books of the Torah. Batashit, which means in beginning. We call it Genesis. Shemot, which means names. We call it Exodus. Vayikra, which is he called. We call it Leviticus. Bimidbar, which means in the desert, we call it numbers. Devarim, words, we call it Deuteronomy. The Hebrew names for these actually mean different things. <clears throat> now, there is a speculation out there that there was originally six books of Moses. And this speculation comes out of more the literary critic arena than, than biblical scholarship. There are people that point to the fact that the first part of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, have a certain narrative style. Now, some people have tried to use this to say Moses didn't write Genesis. Other people aren't saying that at all. Other people are saying that it seems like chapters 1 through 11 were written by Moses, maybe younger. A few years later, he wrote the rest. Or that they were originally written as two different books, and that Genesis is actually 1 through 11. And so if you look at, if you look at Genesis, creation is, is 1 and 2, fall of man is 3, Cain and Abel is 4, Noah's line is 5, the flood, the Nephilim, and the results of this, and don't, let me stop here, don't underestimate the Nephilim. They were one of the great corruptions of flesh. We'll talk about that when we get to Genesis 6. The flood was not just about ordinary people. It was a very real attempt by God to destroy the vast majority of the Nephilim. 
He doesn't destroy all of them. We'll talk about that. The flood had survivors other than Noah. The, the scriptures are very plain about this. Okay, And we'll get there when we, when we talk about Genesis 6. But the flood is 6 through 9. The Tower of Babel is 10 and 11. Then you go to the history of the nation of Israel specifically. Abram, who becomes Abraham, is 12 through 20. Isaac, 21 through 26. Jacob, 27 through 36. Yosef, 37 through 50. Now there's a supposition, and it's only a supposition, that Genesis may have been the first 11 chapters, and the last chapters were a separate work by Moses, making, instead of a Pentateuch, a Hexateuch, I guess. At some point, though, according to the speculation, the first two books of Moses get combined together. Now, I don't think, if that's true, I don't think it makes any difference. We do have you know, a precedent for this, I mentioned this a little earlier, that when you look at First and Second Samuel and the Dead Sea Scrolls, there isn't a First and Second Samuel. The two are combined together as just the book of Samuel. And so there's precedent in antiquity for combining books. So is it plausible that Genesis was written as two books and combined later into one? Yeah, it's plausible. I don't know there's any evidence for it. But if you're talking about, is it something that plausibly could have happened? Yeah. Does it take away from anything? No. But I just, in case somebody runs across that, I just wanted to get that out there. Because you are dealing with prehistory from 1 through 11, and then you're dealing with the history of Israel starting in chapter 12. So, and I'm not a literary critic, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm taking other people's word for this. But some people say that the narrative style seems a little different. Maybe that's true. But I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that Moses wrote all of what is today Genesis. There just seems to be a question about, well, did he write the first part first and then a few years later write the second part? Well, if you're a writer, you know as well as I do that sometimes you may be, you may be writing on a book get writer's block and go work on another project for a year or so, and you may forget a book and then come back to it later. Yeah, these things happen. So, again, it's a speculation that, that you may run across. I don't know how much water it holds, but there it is. Another book we're going to talk about that some people have tried to attribute to Moses is the Book of Wars of the Lord. This is attested to in Numbers 21, verse 14. I'm not going to belabor this long, but there's no evidence that Moses wrote it. It's a book. Moses says it's a book. It was a book maybe written by another patriarch. Maybe it was a book by Enoch. Who knows? Maybe it was a book by Abram or Abraham. Who knows? We don't know. Moses references it. Clearly he thinks it's, that there's some authority to it and it's important. But it doesn't get treated with reverence the way Moses' works do. And if it had been a book of Moses, I would have expected it to have been part of the Hexateuch, because you would have had a sixth book then, a clear sixth book. But it doesn't get preserved. So it may have been an authoritative book to Moses as a, as a history of the nation or the line of Abraham, but it doesn't get treated with the same reverence, clearly, 
that the books of Moses do. Now, if we ever found a copy of this book, maybe it should be placed in the canon. I don't know. But I don't think there's any evidence that Moses wrote this book. It seems it was a book that was pre-existing. Again, it's speculation. Another book that's been attributed to Moses by some without much cause, in my opinion, is Sefer HaYashar, or the Book of the Upright, or the Book of the Just Man. It's mentioned in two places in the Masoretic text. The references in the Masoretic text are Joshua 10.13 and 2 Samuel 1.18. There is a, a, an attempt to say it appears in the Septuagint in 3 Kingdoms 8.52, which is the same as 1 Kings 8.52. It's, and this view states that, that the prayer of Solomon is written in the book of Song according to this scripture. But that this really isn't the book of Song. It's supposed to be the book of Sefer HaYashar. And the way they get there is kind of some convoluted logic. In the Greek, it's called the book of Song, sometimes translated as book of Odes. But the second word of Sefer HaYashar would be Yashar. Okay? If you transpose two letters, it becomes, the, the shar part becomes sheer. And so Alexander Rafa suggested that the name Sefer HaYashar could have been related to this, this book as a book of song, or that it could have been a misspelling in the original Hebrew text from which the Septuagint was translated. And so it said Yashir instead of Yashar. This is a lot of speculation. And there's a lot of complex argument that goes with this, but I'm not going to, to deal with this because it's just speculation. The fact is we have no clear reference to Sefer HaYashar in the Septuagint. We do in the Masoretic text. Now, the first thing you want to do is run to the Dead Sea Scrolls and see if it's there. Except that the corresponding verses are lost because of lacunae holes in the text of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We can't confirm it. Joshua 10.13 and what would be 2 Samuel chapter 1 is pretty much destroyed. Understand that there was no 2 Samuel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's, it's just the book of Samuel. Okay? It's, it's 1 and 2 are, are together as one book. But what would have been 2 Samuel chapter 1 is gone. And Joshua 10.13 is gone. So now we're left just looking at the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Understanding that the Septuagint is the older text. It was translated into Greek during the 200s BC, during the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus, Ptolemy II Philadelphus. The oldest reasonably complete Septuagint texts we have are from the 4th century, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, and the 5th century, Codex Alexandrinus. There's some debate as to which one's more authoritative because some people say, well, Codex Alexandrinus would probably be more authoritative even though it's a little bit younger because it, would, it was from Alexandria, so it was closer to the original Septuagint traditions and translations. Other people disagree and say, no, the elder texts have to be given the, the deference. So we'll let them debate that. I'm not going to. But 300s and 400s, 4th century and 5th century, is what we have for Septuagint reasonably complete. There are some fragments of Septuagint out there that are even older. But we have reasonably complete Septuagint from the 4th and 5th century. 
We don't get a reasonably complete Masoretic text until we get to the Aleppo Codex, which I'll sometimes refer to as being 800s, but it's actually 10th century dated to the 900s. And the reason I'll sometimes give it 800s is because on the off chance with the margin of error for dating, maybe the Aleppo Codex dates as early as the late 800s. Maybe. That's stretching it, admittedly so. So sometimes you may hear me say the Aleppo Codex was 800s, even though it's dated 900s, because I'll give it the benefit of the doubt with margin of error and say, well, maybe it was written in the late 800s, but honestly, that's just me being very generous. The next oldest of the Masoretic text is the Leningrad Codex, and that's, that's 11th century. One of the speculations is that the reference to Sefer HaYashar in the Masoretic text is an addition. That the Masoretes added this because if you read particularly Joshua 10.13, it sounds like it's referencing something rather fantastic. It's talking about, and the sun stood still and the moon stood still until the nation was avenged on its foes. Is it not written in the book of the upright? Yea, the sun stood still in the middle of the heavens and did not hasten to go down for a full day. And so one school of thought is, is, is this happened, but it sounds so out there that the Masoretes add, well, don't just take Joshua's word for it. It's also in the book of the upright. So they try to add a second source. That's one possibility. And one of the, def one of the arguments against that is that, well, no, but you have to understand there's another book out there, and that's the book of Jasher. Now, the King James Version translates Joshua 10.13 as, is it not written in the, in the book of Jasher? Translates it as a proper noun. Well, that's interesting, and you wonder if the book of Jasher was known to the translators of the King James Version but we can't really support that because of the timelines, but that's still possible. We just don't know. Maybe it's just a mistake, and they're translating Hayashar as Jasher as a proper name. If so, they may not be the first ones to do it. There is a hoax that was perpetrated in the 1700s, and this hoax is referenced as pseudo-Jasher today. But a guy named Jacob, and I think it's I-L-I-V-E, Elive was his name. And in 1751, he published an English work that he called the Book of Jasher and claimed that it was a translation of the original Book of Jasher. This was very clearly a hoax. However, we do get references to a printed form of a book of Jasher from Venice in the 17, in, excuse me, in the 1620s. We do get reference to a printed version of the book of Jasher from Venice in 1625. Also, it's believed that Nachmanides in the 1200s references the book of Jasher, though he does so cautiously as if not fully trusting that this is a reputable book. Okay, so the book of Jasher 
is something that is very troublesome. It comes back to haunt Christians and Jews. Because the Sefer HaYashar, whatever it is, whether it's the book of Jasher or not, and if it's not, it's the book of Jasher certainly gets misascribed to being this book. And that's a problem. In fact, we've got authors today. There's the author of a book of giants. I believe it's Stephen Quayle is his name, if I remember correctly. Uh, refers to this as a biblically endorsed extra-biblical text. And he's talking about the book of Jasher. Well, there is no way to connect Sefer HaYashar with the extant book of Jasher. There's just no way to connect them. Because this reference gets made in the Masoretic texts, but we don't have good attestation to the book of Jasher at the earliest until the 1200s. And so that's a bit of a problem. Now, one of the problems that we see, however, is that this reference to Sefer HaYashar is not even interpreted as being a reference to a separate book in every case. In Avodah Zarah 25a of the Talmud, it sees it as a reference to one of the other books of the Torah, most likely Genesis. Or in the case of David's reference in, in Samuel, possibly Deuteronomy or Judges. So not even the Jewish scholars agree that Sefer HaYashar is even referencing the same book in the two places where it's mentioned. So it's, it's a problematic book. But what seems to have happened is a couple of things. Either someone saw this reference to Sefer HaYashar and decided to write a midrash explaining it, never intending it to be mistaken for the book, but it gets mistaken for the book, or someone creates an elaborate forgery in the form of a midrash and purposely calls it the book of Jasher, purporting to be that book, basically a hoax. Or, third possibility, someone writes a midrash explaining what the book of the upright might have contained intending it to be a theoretical work of this is what the, the book of, of the upright may have contained and it gets misattributed and misunderstood and gets referred to as the book of Jasher and is supposed to, as it is supposed to be the actual book. And so it's a, a misinterpretation. There's a number of possibilities here. But one thing that we can say for sure is that this is not a work by Moses because where it's referenced in Joshua, it says, is it not written in the book of the upright that the sun and the moon stood still? So obviously in this book of the upright that's being talked about in the, the Masoretic text, it's supposed to have been something that was chronicling the battle Joshua just fought. So it could not have been written by Moses. Moses was dead in Moab. All right, Moses was dead in Moab at this point. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 34, he dies somewhere around Mount Nebo in Moab, and God buries him, and no one knows where his grave is. So I think we can put to rest that the book of Jasher is not a work by Moses. It's not even connected to Moses, and it may not even be connected to Sefer HaYashar. However, it's an outrageously popular book, both in the 1200s, 1300s, and on, 
and it continues to be popular today. So we will deal with the book of Jasher in a different episode. We'll talk about exclusively about the book of Jasher, what it contains, and the implications of it in another episode. But for now, just understand the book of Jasher, as referenced in the King James Version, is a mistranslation, and we have no idea what book this is actually referring to. Now, the final thing I'm going to say about the book, the books of Moses, is this. There is one part of the Torah which I don't think is going to give a whole lot of people a heartburn to say this, but there's one part of the Torah that Moses very likely did not write. And that is the last chapter of Deuteronomy. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 34, it's talking about the death of Moses. And it talks about after the death of Moses, how they mourn for him for 30 days. Well, Moses is dead. He can't be writing this. Okay? So I don't think it gives people a lot of heartburn that the last chapter may have been written by Joshua. I think very likely it was written by Joshua finishing Moses' work. Some people have suggested that perhaps the last blessing of Moses was something spoken and that Joshua was writing it down as he spoke it and then he went up to Mount Nebo and that Joshua may have accompanied him and then walked down and left Moses there so that he could then you know so that Joshua could then lead the people across uh, into the Holy Land. And so there has been some speculation that maybe chapter 33 and 34 are actually penned by Joshua. But on the other hand, 33 may have been written down by Moses before he actually said it. He may have written it down and then went out and you know, did this speech, handed this to Joshua, and then said, finish my chronicle and then start your own. And I think that's very likely what happened. So I don't think it should give anybody any heartburn that Moses did not write at least the last chapter of Deuteronomy. Arguably, the 33rd chapter may have been written down by Joshua. But I think it's pretty reasonable that Joshua wrote chapter 34. The rest, Yeshua plainly says, was written by Moses. And we can bank on that. So that deals with the authenticity of Moses that deals with a couple of extra canonical books that for some strange reason people try to attribute to Moses. And so now we've gotten that front matter out of the way. Now we're ready to start delving into the stuff that's going to prepare us to deal with, with Genesis. Okay, we're going, to get, we're going to get to Genesis by the end of this episode. We're going to get to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. But we've got to get this front matter out of the way. So let's line out the creation story first. Day zero. By the way, I'm going to say something here that's going to send some of you into a tizzy. There are not six days of creation. There are seven days of creation at the bare minimum, possibly an eighth. And, and we're about to talk about it now. In day zero, we have a creative event. Day zero starts in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's what we're taught. 
We are told in Job 38, 4 through 7, that the angels cheered during the creation week. We're told this in Job, that the angels were cheering during the creation week. So at some point before the creation week, God has to create the angels. There's only one time that he could have done this in the scripture. And that is Genesis 1.1. So, day zero, it would have been analogous to Saturday. Angels, the angelic realm, and the earth are created. There is then a gap between day zero and day one. And we'll talk about that in the next session. We'll talk about the gap theory. And we'll talk about whence it comes. And we'll talk about the scriptural support for it. But what we find out is that there is a mistranslation of Genesis 1-2 in most Bibles. The Hebrew word that gets translated in most Bibles as was is incorrectly translated. In Genesis 1-2 it says vav, that's the, that's the Hebrew conjunction that's used there. There's a reason I'm saying vav instead of and or but. It's vav. That's the, that's the Hebrew word, vav. The earth, then there's this verb that's a pluperfect form. The pluperfect form is a form that demonstrates that an action was completed in the past. So it's something that happened and is not in a continuous state. It was something that had a beginning and an end. It was an action that began in the past and ended in the past. The correct translation of that verb is not was. Was is continuous. The correct translation is became. And vav is a conjunction that can mean and or but. And in this context, the Hebrew translation of Vav at the beginning of verse 2 is but. So you get, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But the earth became ruined and void. Or waste and void. Ruined, waste, we can translate that either way. That, that, that doesn't mean much. It's, it's still within the, the ballpark of meaning there. But the important thing is, is that what we see in verse 2 is a pluperfect form that talks about an action that started and ended in the past. It's not continuous. The Hebrew is this is a pluperfect form, but the earth became ruined and void. And we'll talk about the scripture support for that. We'll, we'll come back to that in the next session. And we'll talk about the scriptural support that this is became because God actually says in another place in the Bible that he didn't create the earth void. He created it from the very beginning to be inhabited. So it can't have been created ruined and waste. It can't have been. And we'll talk about all that in the next session. But just kind of giving you a preview here. So day zero, the angels, the angelic realm of heaven, and the earth are created you get a gap between one and two. Then we're told that something happened to the earth. And then we start getting in 
to the creation narrative. Then we start getting in to the creation of the world and the universe as we know it. Because in verse 3, we start day 1. Day 1 starts in verse 3. And that is when God says, let light be. He doesn't say, let there be light. Actually, the Hebrew is, let light be. The connotation is, let light come into being. So this is when light's created. This is the Big Bang. Okay? Day two, we get the stretching of space. Day three, land and vegetation. Day four, stars and planets. Day five, sea animals and birds. Day six, land animals and man. Day seven, Shabbat, Sabbath, is established. And then day eight, we'll have a discussion about day eight and the creation then. Because there are multiple points of view about day six and day eight. The first point of view you've doubtless heard about. The first point of view is that God created man. He does a flyby in chapter 1. He doesn't give us much of a detailed description of what he did. In this view, in chapter 2, we come back and get a much more detailed account. The next view is that when God says that he created man, and remember, the word for man is Adam. Adam is never given a name. God leaves naming to Adam. But he never gives Adam a name. He just calls him man. It's kind of like the joke about the dude in The Big Lebowski. I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the clips. You know, Jeff Bridges is the dude, and he refers to himself in the third person. The dude abides. There's a sort of a joke about God, you know, naming, naming his first human being dude. You know, dude, do this. Dude, do that. Well, he kind of does that. Man, do this. Man, do that. Man, here's your woman. Man, don't eat from this tree. Adam is never given a name. Adam means man. Because of that, one view says, and God created Adam, male and female, he created them on the day sixth account, that this is a simultaneous creation of Adam and some other woman. And there grows through Midrash this tradition that Adam had a first wife named Lilith. And we'll talk about that tradition when we get there. Then there's another tradition, and this is chiefly Hasidic from what I can see, that God created Adam, man, male and female, he created them as a simultaneous creation, and they were created together, and together they were as a single hermaphrodite being with both sex organs. And that when God puts a sleep on Adam and takes his rib, it's a metaphor for him separating Adam and his wife into two separate beings. That's another view. That's chiefly Hasidic from what I can tell. I've never heard anyone describe that that was not a Hasidic rabbi. Then there is another view. And this view is also a widely popular view among Jews and Christians. And that is, on day six, God created Adam, not as a proper name, but Adam, mankind, male and female, he created them. And this was the Gentiles. And that on day eight, God plants the Garden of Eden and creates Adam and Eve as a separate, special creation. 
and that the line of the Messiah is going to come out of the Edenic man, not the man and woman that, that were created outside of Eden you know, on day six. But the day eight people will be who gives rise to the chosen people and the Messiah. So these are different traditions. One, Genesis 6 is a flyby telling, and in chapter 2, he goes back and gives us, fills in the details. That's one. That's tradition one. Tradition two, Adam had a first wife. Tradition three, Adam was a hermaphroditic being that later got separated into two beings. Tradition four, there are two different creations of mankind. There are, there are people other than Adam's family in the world, and that explains the whole interaction with Cain and God and Cain finding a wife. So we'll talk about these traditions when we get there. But I just want you all to be prepared for what we're going to get into. But that lines out the creation. There is a day zero, and then there's a day one. So before we get too much into that, let's talk about some, some science concepts that we're going to have to get laid out so we can understand it. In order to understand what Genesis reveals, we need to understand that there are theological paradoxes we're going to encounter. But these paradoxes are only paradoxes because of our limited understanding. One of the paradoxes we, we run into very frequently, for example, is the eternity of God. How can God be eternal? If the universe had a beginning and it has an end, how, how does God have eternity? What, what's going on there? Well, I'm going to say to you that whenever you encounter a paradox, it's usually because you're encountering something that you're not seeing right off the bat. And I'm going to give you a little insight into what physics has illuminated about the nature of our reality itself. Let's start out with a triangle. Now, if you talk about a triangle, you're usually talking about Euclidean geometry, plane geometry, geometry of a flat plane, and geometry of a flat plane is two-dimensional geometry. And if you know of a two-dimensional triangle, you draw it out on a sheet of paper, and you measure the angles, all the internal angles of a triangle will measure to 180 degrees. If you have an equilateral triangle with all three sides equal, all of your angles have to be equal, and they'll all be 60 degrees, and they will add up to 180 degrees. If you have an isosceles right triangle, then that means you have two equal, uh, equal measure sides. The angle between them is going to be 90 degrees, and then the angles of the third side and the two uh, equal sides are going is going to be 45 degrees. It's going to add up to 180 degrees. I'm going to throw a monkey wrench into all of this. You ready? Go to the go to Home Depot or something like that and get you a rubber bendable ruler and draw a triangle on a basketball. Try to draw an equilateral triangle on a basketball, and then try to draw some other triangle on a basketball. Just draw triangles on a basketball. See how this works for you. First thing you notice is your sides aren't straight anymore. They're curves because of the curvature of the basketball. Try measuring your angles. What you're going to find out is when you start drawing triangles on a basketball, the bigger you make the triangle, the, the bigger the angles can be. 
and you can wind up with 90 degree angles at all three sides. Whoa, wait, what? Triangle has to have all the internal angles add up to 180 degrees. How are we getting angles that are 90 degrees in each corner? You've encountered a paradox that's not supposed to happen, or did you? It looks like a paradox, unless you understand that what you've just done is you changed the rules because you added a dimension you didn't have before. You've gone from two-dimensional geometry to three-dimensional geometry. Now the rules have changed. The addition of an extra dimension changes all the rules. This is one of the reasons that Einstein grappled with the concept of space until he realized, because he was looking at space as three dimensions, breadth, width, and height. When he realized that there was a fourth dimension, and he began to look at it in terms of mass, velocity, length, and time as four dimensions, suddenly Einstein was able to come up with relativity. And then he came up with special relativity when he realized that space and time were basically inseparable. Hence, the dimension of space-time. And so what that discovered was that we live in a four-dimensional continuum. And physics has confirmed this mathematically, 14 or 15 different ways. So let's look at space-time. What do we know about space-time? I'm going to give you some classic examples here out of physics because these work and you can find other pastors on the internet that have used these examples. And I'm going to, to talk about these because like I said, these are classic examples for a reason. They, they illustrate the point rather well. So these classical examples, let's, let's go ahead and start with the first one and that's the atomic clocks. Now the atomic clocks were based off of cesium and cesium, certain cesium isotopes have a very regular decay rate. And it made a very, very precise clock. There were two cesium clocks, one in Greenwich that was about 80 feet above sea level. And there was another one that was in Boulder, Colorado at about 5,400 feet. That's above sea level. What they found out was that these clocks didn't keep the same time. They were both extremely accurate clocks and they were twin clocks so they should have been the same except the one in Greenwich was about five microseconds slower every year than its twin over in Colorado. Big investigation. Well, one of the things they talked about, and if you actually look at the NIST website, uh, there's, a, there's an article about NIST pair of aluminum atomic clocks reveal Einstein's relatively at a personal scale. Uh, so this is an article from 2010, and it talks about that. that and I'll just read the first paragraph. It says that scientists have known for decades that time passes faster at higher elevations, a curious aspect of Einstein's theories of relativity that previously has been measured by comparing clocks on Earth's surface in a high-flying rocket. Physicists at the National Institute of Standards and Technology have measured this effect at more down-to-Earth scale of 33 centimeters or about one foot, demonstrating, for instance, that you age faster when you stand a couple of steps higher on a staircase. 
Well, they went on to describe a little more detail about this in an article in Science Magazine from September 24th, 2010. And it was by uh, C.W. Cho, D.B. Hume, T. Rosenband, and D.J. Wineland, Optical Clocks and Relativity. Okay. This effect, which is the gravitational time dilation effect, has been known for a while. Gravity, mass, and velocity have an effect on space-time. We know that from Einstein and his relativity, special relativity, and, and other physics research. And that's why time ticks faster the higher in elevation you go, because the higher in elevation you go, the you are farther away from the surface of the Earth, and gravity gets just slightly less. So all you people living in the mountains are kind of worried now, right? Well, aging five microseconds a year isn't going to make you old before your time, okay? But you are, you are aging faster than those of us at sea level. <laughs> That's all right, I'm between the two. I'm at about 1,000 feet elevation, so I'm, I'm aging faster than somebody at sea level two. But this has been known for a while, and it shows this time dilation effect that you can encounter with gravity. Another classic example is the twin astronaut example. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna make some assumptions here because we can't actually conduct this. We have to do this mathematically with mathematical formulas because we can't travel at 99.9% at .9 the speed of light, and we certainly still can't even travel at 50% the speed of light, okay? But we're gonna use these as mathematical examples. And these are some classic examples from physics. In fact, I remember doing this when I was in physics, physics class in undergraduate. Take two astronauts that are the same age, they're identical twins, born at the same time. And we're gonna have one twin stay on Earth, and the other twin is gonna go to Alpha Centauri, which is our closest star that's about 4.5 light years away. And he's gonna travel at 50% the speed of light. So when he goes there, it's gonna take him about nine years because he's half the speed of light and it's 4.5 light years away. So it's gonna be nine years there, nine years back. When he comes back, his twin on Earth will have aged 18 years. But the astronaut taking the trip will have only aged 15 years and seven months. Huh. He actually comes back two years and five months younger than his twin brother. Well, that's interesting. On his clock, on his ship, 15 years and seven months passed. But a clock here on the Earth, it'll have been 18 years. Let's up the ante. Let's say we could send him at 99.9999999% the speed of light. So basically the speed of light. The round trip would take nine years. Four and a half years there, four and a half years back for a clock on the Earth. For a clock on the ship, 33 days. So what does all this mean in relation to the Bible? Time has to be understood as a physical property, not something abstract. It varies with mass, velocity, and gravity, among other things. One of the problems that we have is that being caught up in time, we tend to think of time 
as linear and moving in only one direction. We even draw timelines to talk about events of history. And when we are thinking about time, we can only see where we are. We can anticipate the future. We can remember the past, but we can only see where we are. Some people have said that we can move forward in time and look back, but we can't move back or look forward, right? You can't look forward. You can't remember tomorrow. But that actually isn't true. We can't actually look back either. We can see the past if someone took a, a film of it, but we're not actually seeing the past. We're seeing the recorded media, what was recorded on the media at the time. We're not actually seeing the past. It's like looking at the past, but it's not looking at the past. You see, I can't go to Philadelphia and go into the building and into the room where the Continental Congress sat in 1775, 1776. And I can't just stare into that room and watch John Adams and John Dickinson arguing with each other. I can't do it. I can't stand there and look back in time. I can't look forward in time. I can anticipate, but I can't look forward in time either. We can only see the present. And we only see the future once it reaches us and becomes the present. Because we're locked in time on a sliding lock. And our sliding lock only goes one direction, but time goes both directions. We just can't move. We're just here and we just move in one direction. We're sliding locked in time. Because of our limited ability to understand time, we tend to think of eternity as a line that goes on for infinity in both directions. And we tend to think of God as having a lot of time. But that's not how time works. Let's go back to the triangle of flat plane for a minute. All the angles equal 180 degrees internally. Take a basketball, map out a triangle, you can wind up uh, seeing that you'll have curved sides and you can have 90 degrees in each corner. The sides are curved though because you added a third dimension. They're not straight lines. Nachmanides, a Jewish scholar, theologian, rabbi in the 1200s did a deep dive, and I wish I knew how he did this, but he did a deep dive into Genesis. And when he came, when he lifted his head up from Genesis, he had figured out something that physics did not confirm until the 20th century. Nachmanides in the 1200s said that there were at least 10 dimensions and that we are only able to fully understand three, have a partial understanding of a fourth, and that we exist in four dimensions, but there are six other dimensions at least that are unknowable. Wow. Physics confirmed this mathematically in the 20th century. 
With the advent of string theory, it got people to thinking about it. And string theory basically, and this is a gross oversimplification, but basically string theory said something to the effect of the universe appears to be composed of one-dimensional strings vibrating in ten dimensions. We have mathematically demonstrated that there are at least ten dimensions, perhaps more. Now, one thing that's interesting is the Bible predicts this, because Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the Most High that inhabits eternity. Well, where is eternity? Well, that's obvious. In the other six dimensions. Somewhere. Think of it like this. I add a third dimension, I change my lines to curves on the basketball. If time travels on linearly, from our perspective, being locked in it, add another dimension of just a fifth dimension, and the shape of time goes from a line to a curve. Think about God inhabiting these other dimensions like a point, and time curving around him. With that, God can see the entire stretch of time. Let's try to do a clumsy example for us. Let's say you walk up to a stream. Two miles to the north, it comes out of a spring, but you can't say it's two miles away. Two miles to the south, it dumps into a lake, but you can't see it. It's two miles down the road. But if you go up in a hot air balloon, get yourself out of the plane of that dimension into another dimension, you can look and you can see the spring where it originates, where you were standing before, and where it dumps into the lake all at the same time. Past, present, and future. That was my cat. So, think about it this way. If you envision time as a curve from the perspective of God who inhabits other dimensions as well as these, and God exists outside the constraints of time. He's not subject to mass. He's not subject to gravity. He's not subject to velocity. He's not subject to time. He does not have lots of time. He's eternal because he has really no time. Not the way we think of no time. I have no time. It means I'm running out of time. No, no, no. God doesn't have time. Not because he has no time, but because he exists outside the dimensionality of time. Time is not a constraint with him. And so he can have access to the entire span of time all at the same moment. Here's another way to think about it. If the extra dimensionality of God means time is curved, then someone who died 2,000 years ago, someone who died yesterday, and someone who dies 100 years from now can all arrive at the throne of God at the same moment. That doesn't mean they do, but they could. Another way to think of this, entropy. Entropy is the principle that everything tends to head toward chaos or a uniformly stable state. In other words, the universe is winding down. If the universe was infinitely old, the temperature throughout the universe is expected to be uniform as thermal decay progresses. 
And that uniformly stable state will mean that everything stops because work can't be done without an energy differential. So if everything has the same heat, everything has the same energy, everything's become uniform, no biological processes can take place, no work can be done, it just winds down. Since the universe is not uniform, it can't be infinitely old. It had a beginning. Now, scientists talk about this beginning as being the Big Bang. And then the end is ultimate heat death. Now, keep in mind that there are limits to things. Okay? The universe is not infinite. And it's not infinite in either direction. I don't mean left or right or up or down. I mean large and small. There is an edge to the universe out there, far away, but it's not infinite. There's also a finite limit to smallness. In fact, the expansion factor of the universe is about 1 times 10 to the 12th power. So there's a leading edge to the universe. So there's not infinite largeness. So there is no infinity out there. The universe also doesn't have infinite smallness either. Most people think you can chop a line in half, then take that one of those halves and chop that in half, then take another one and chop that in half, then take another one and chop that in half, and you can keep doing that for infinity, but you can't. What physics has discovered is that at about 1 times 10 to the negative 35 centimeters, locality becomes lost. In other words, you chop something down that small and it no longer has a location. It loses an actual location. It loses locality. So you can't cut it. You can't even find it to cut it. it, it ex it's, it's almost as if it exists everywhere and nowhere. Time has even been found to be quantized. As a matter of fact, physics have sh has shown that 5.4 times 10 to the negative 44 seconds is the smaller, smallest unit of time that can exist. Time exists like keys on a keyboard. There's nothing in between. And that is mind-blowing. It is shattering to everything people thought about reality. And physics is absolutely struggling with what it's found out about reality. We'll get into that in the next session. There are even physicists that have said that anybody who is not profoundly disturbed by quantum theory has not understood it. If everything is quantized and nothing is continuous, what this suggests is that our four-dimensional universe is constructed in a manner similar to a digital simulation. I hate to get matrixy on you, but it appears that's what we're in. In fact, the whole notion of being stuck in the matrix wasn't just something that some science fiction writer came up with. It came out of the actual discoveries of physics. Our four-dimensional continuum universe isn't actually continuous. It's quantized. It's digital. Something's there or it's not. A, p a unit of time is there or it's not. Matter has locality or, it, or it's too small and doesn't have locality and it's everywhere and nowhere. And if that's true, our space-time continuum being constructed as a digital simulation and God exists outside the dimensionality of time, 
That leads us to an interesting understanding of the nature of God and time. With God outside the dimensionality of time, then light is being created, Adam is being made. God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. Yeshua, 1.0, Joshua, is entering the promised land. God is having a conversation with Isaiah and giving a vision to Ezekiel. And Yeshua, the Christ, is being nailed to the cross. And the battle of Armageddon is being fought. And Yeshua is returning as King of Kings and Lord of Lords all at this very moment as you're sitting there listening to me. It's all happening right now. As a matter of fact, if you finish this podcast and then you come back to this episode and listen to it tomorrow, all these same things will be happening right then too. The whole span of time is happening at the same time from the perspective of God. Because of his ability to exist in all dimensions at once, and, there are, and he is at least a ten-dimensional being, because there's at least ten dimensions, being free from the dimensionality of time, he is able to encode future events from our perspective in something written in our past. God doesn't know the outcome because he's psychic. He knows because he can see, touch, and interact with the entire span of time at the same moment. If you're praying to God, he is listening to you. And guess what? He's listening to Moses at the exact same time. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Absolutely. But now you begin to understand how. God doesn't have a lot of time. He's not psychic. He's not somebody you can call up on the phone with a Jamaican accent going, I'm going to give you your future, man. No, no, no. God sees interacts and touches everyone that has ever been, that is, or ever will be all at the same time from his perspective. And to that end, the authentication of Yeshua as Messiah was done in the First Testament, centuries before he actually came. Understanding the dimensionality of time gives you a unique perspective. Einstein said, people like us who believe in physics know that the distinction between the past, the present, and the future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. The other limit we see is randomness. We can't find randomness. Uniformity and aggregation are the commonest distributions, but we can't find randomness, not true randomness. You see, if you start trying to generate random numbers, you won't generate random numbers. 
it will appear random in the first few iterations, maybe the first few hundred, maybe the first thousand or so, maybe even the first 10,000. But the longer you keep generating numbers, the more you start seeing that data points aggregate. Patterns emerge. Millions and billions of data points and even trillions reveal distinctive patterns that appear to hold to a mathematical law. Wait, what? You're talking about random numbers, right? Yes, there are no random numbers. They only appear random in small sample sizes. Chaos theory has actually been developed because people have been at a loss to explain this phenomenon. And chaos theory, and you may have heard of chaos theory from the Jurassic Park movies, right? Or the Jurassic Park book. Ian Malcolm is the chaotician. But chaos theorists and physicists are at a complete loss to explain this. And chaos theory has developed out of seeing this phenomenon take place. There is a gravitation toward order which defies the laws of entropy. And science can't explain it. And we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about the lack of randomness and the implications of non-locality probably in our next DE session. But for now, that gives us enough background to start getting into Genesis. Because now we've introduced dimensionality. Now I'm going to I'm going to give you some Bible verses. Septuagint. Whoso answers before he hears, it is a folly and reproach to him. That's Proverbs 18:13. Masoretic text. If one rejects a matter before he hears, it is a folly and shame to him. Another way of putting this is that if you condemn something before you hear it, you're never going to learn anything. So listen to what I'm saying with an open mind. Think about these things. Now let's dive finally into the first verse of Genesis. It's taken us a while to get here. Bereshit bara Elohim. That's the first three words of verse one. And you say, great, let's go. Wait. They need some attention. One of the things that we're doing in this podcast is we're going to talk about when Bible translators mistranslate the Bible. And this is one of the greatest mistranslations in the Bible. And it's the very first thing. Bereshit is the Hebrew. Now, I'm going to say something about the order here. We would translate this, most Bibles translate this as, in the beginning, God created Actually, you have to understand that Hebrew has a slightly different word order than English. It actually would be Bereshit, bara Elohim, is in the beginning, created God, and then the next part, heaven and the earth. Don't let that throw you. It's just, it's just a word order. We do, we do subject, verb, object. They don't do that in Hebrew. All right? In Hebrew, it, it's, it's often... The verb is before the subject. We translate it as, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So the object's heaven and the earth. 
Well, they'll say, created God, heaven and earth. Just don't let that throw you. But Batashit, let's talk about that first word. The literal translation is in beginning or in the beginning. Sounds simple enough, so most people move on, but don't do that. Among the Jewish sages, you need to translate this scripture in terms of Hebrew thought. Remember this about the Bible. The Bible is written for everyone, but it wasn't written to everyone. Well, what do you mean? Mick, what are you talking about? The Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. But it was written to the Jews, to their culture. There are places in the Bible that will be translated, you know, the, the circle of the world. Well, the actual translation from the Hebrew is the disk because the Hebrews at that time thought the world was flat in a disk. The inerrancy of the Bible does not mean God does not talk to people within the framework of their knowledge of the day. The Bible is inerrant in what it affirms. But understand the Bible is not affirming your anatomy. In the Hebrew, several places they talk about the mind. The actual reference Hebrew word is guts or entrails because they didn't know about the brain. They didn't know that everything went on in the brain. They talk about thinking about things with your gut, basically. And they talk about, oh, the things of the heart. Well, the heart is just a blood pump. It's a, it's a muscle. God doesn't go, hey, you don't think with your blood pump. God doesn't say things like that. God's word is inerrant in what it affirms. He's not interested in correcting their views of anatomy. He's not interested in correcting their views of earth being round rather than flat. God had, to, to put it as one pastor did, God had bigger fish to fry than worrying about their limited understanding about the science behind his creation. Okay? But science is revealed in the scripture but God doesn't specifically talk about this in those terms. So understand that. We have to understand the Bible in terms of who it was written to. It was written for us all, but it was written to the Jews, taking into account their understanding at the time and taking under into account their worldview at the time and taking into account their culture. So the Bible is written to the Jewish culture at the time the Bible was written down, what their scientific level of knowledge was, and it was written to them in all of that context. We've got to understand that. To understand what the Bible is saying, we don't come at it with a 20. 20th or 21st century point of view and try to impose that on top of the Bible. We have to have a Jewish antiquity point of view and then see what God reveals that we find out later is, is, is going on. So we have to look at it a little differently. 
We're not going to look at it and say, well, what, what does science say the, the Bible says? No, no. What does the Bible say that reveals, that illuminates and tells us, oh, yeah, this stuff you discovered in science? Yeah, this is what I was talking about. But while that's there, understand that this is not spelled out. God is writing to the Hebrews, understanding and allowing the context of their culture to receive his word. So just understand this, okay? I know it's a difficult concept to wrestle with, but God wrote it to the Hebrews. So we have to look at Hebrew thought to understand the word of God because it's written to them. Things that they may not have understood in a technical sense, God puts in there for us later. But the vocabulary is not our language. It's theirs. That's how we have to interpret the Scripture. We have to translate this, the Scripture from the connotation of the languages it was written in. And that's what we're doing here. Bereshit means in beginning. Sounds simple, like I said. But the word is understood among the Jewish sages to be an absolute, meaning before there was anything. In fact, before the first letter bet, of the Hebrew word Bereshit, there was nothing but God. There was no light. There was no dark. There was no energy. There was no matter. There was no space-time. There was nothing but God. And it was not nothing in the sense of empty space ready to be filled. There was no space. There was nothing. The dimension of space-time was not even there yet. There was nothing before this. And so the correct translation is in the absolute beginning. That's the correct translation. That's the connotation. Understand that what scientists call the Big Bang I'm going to deal with this now because we're not going to run into the Big Bang. I want to separate this. The Big Bang doesn't come in Genesis 1-1. The Big Bang doesn't come until Genesis 1-3. Okay? Now what the Big Bang is, is not just the creation of light, but it's the creation of light, energy, matter, and space-time. As I mentioned uh, in a previous session, and I think it was maybe the introduction, physics has discovered that a particle and its antiparticle will meet and they annihilate each other and throw up a photon. So you get matter and antimatter, they collide and you get light and nothing. But matter can't be created or destroyed, only transformed from one form to another. And the same with energy. Energy can't be created or destroyed, only transformed from one form to another. So how can you take matter and antimatter, which is just matter with an opposite charge, put them together and you get light and nothing. Where's the matter? Where's the conservation of matter? Because most reactions are reversible under the right conditions, this bodes a very profound question. Is matter composed of light in a way we don't yet understand? Because that's what that reaction seems to, to indicate. Because you have matter and antimatter, which is, again, just matter with an opposite charge. 
these two particles come together and you get light and nothing. Where did the mass go? The law of conservation of matter breaks down at this point. Apparently because matter, in some way we've yet to understand, is composed of light. So understanding that, let's talk about the Big Bang again. The Big Bang is not just one theory, it's a collection of theories and all of the models, steady state, hesitation, oscillation, inflation, all of them have problems and require conditions that don't quite work or conditions that have never really been observed before. And it's a collection of views that's an attempt to explain the observations about the expansion of the universe and the expansion factor that's measurable and measured at about 10 to the 12th power. To that end, a Jewish, a Jewish scientist named Dr. Gerald Schroeder looked at the expansion factor of the universe and looked at, at, at the estimate of 16 billion years for the age of the universe and noted that 16 billion years times 365 gives you 6 times 10 to the 12th days. And if you divide 16 times 10 to the 12th days by the 10 to the 12th expansion factor, you get 6 days. Thus, he calculated that day one could have been about 8 billion years, the second day about 4 billion years, the third day 2 billion years, fourth day 1 billion years, fifth day a half billion years, and the sixth day a quarter billion years. That totals up to about 15.75 billion years and puts you in right nicely into the ballpark of 16 billion years for the age of the universe. And a clock on the Earth and a clock at the perimeter of the expansion would differ by a factor of 10 to the 12. So, so some scientists have said, well, the six days thing, yeah, may work. Well, that's interesting. But honestly, it doesn't mean that much. It's a nice way to try to explain it. But the biggest thing that we've got to tackle, and we'll come back to age of the earth arguments in another episode, but we've got the creation of light in verse 3. Verse 3 starts day 1. Day 0 is 1-1. One, one. Day 1 starts with verse 3, with the command, let light be. It had to be the creation of matter, energy, and space-time. Space and time with space-time having an expansion of 10 to the 12th power. But for right now, we're trying, let's, let's stay with Genesis, let's go back to Genesis 1-1. I'm just, I'm just sort of giving you context of Genesis 1-1. So understand, Genesis 1-1 is not the creation of space-time. That doesn't happen. Matter, light, energy, and space-time don't come into being until verse 3. So when we see Batashit in the absolute beginning, What's going on? Well, we're fixing to get the creation of the heavenly realm. And we know this because, one, it's singular. But also, the Hebrew, just like in English, heaven can mean heaven, as in throne of God, place of the angels. It can also mean heavens, as in the place where the stars are hung, what we would call space. Cue the astronaut theme, right? Or the birds fly in the heavens, as in the atmosphere. It can, it can mean any one of the three. The Jewish thought on this is that when it talks about heaven and the earth in Genesis 1-1, it's talking about the heavenly realm of the angels because this has to be when the angels are created. Because we're told in Job that the angels cheered during the creation week. 
This is before the creation week. This is the creation of the angels, the heavenly realm, and earth. So earth is created before God has space-time to hang it in. Because space-time doesn't come into being until verse 3. So think about this for a second. Okay? We'll come back to it. So Bereshit in the absolute beginning. Bara. Bara is an interesting word in Hebrew. It's translated as formed or created, but that is not right. There are three words for formed or created in Hebrew. Asa, which means to make, fashion, or fabricate something from something that's already there. Yatsa is to form, again, from something present. So let's take a look at this. Let's say, let's, let's go a little John Denver, okay? Get a little clay, put it on a wheel, get just a taste how God must feel, right? The, the song, The Potter's Wheel, okay? Earth and water and wind conspire with human hands and love and fire, okay? If you're not familiar with the Potter's Wheel song, go find it. It's a John Denver song. So let's take the Potter's Wheel analogy. Take some clay, put it on a wheel, and he says, get just a hint how God must feel because you're, you're shaping something, right? So... What you can do with that clay is you can asa a pot out of it. Make, fashion, or fabricate. Because asa means to make, fashion, or fabricate something from something else already present. You're taking clay and you're making a pot. You can yatsa, form a pot. Because yatsa means to form from something already there. You can't bara a pot. You can asa a pot, you can yatsa a pot, but you can't bara a pot. Why? Because the word bara in Hebrew means to form from nothing or to create from nothing. You can't bara a pot. You're starting with clay. For you to bara a pot, you would have to sit there and stare at the wheel and a pot magically form out of nothing. You can't bara a pot. You have to asa or yatsa a pot. We see actually Isaiah 43, 7 uses all three words. But the word here is bara, to create from nothing. Now we're going to look at the third word. And the third word is the one that gives people the most trouble. Elohim. Elohim is a plural form. I am is a plural ending in Hebrew. It's like the keruv and the keruvim. We would say in English cherub and cherubim. The actual word is keruv and keruvim. There's the serav and the seravim. All right? So, I am is a plural ending. Elohim is a plural of El or Allah. Either one of those is singular forms. El is the more primitive singular form. But El, Allah are singular. Elohim, plural. Now, a lot of Bibles say, in the beginning, God created. That's not what it says. We've already established that's not what it says. In the absolute beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, right? Or God created from nothing is more correct. But Elohim is plural. And so some Bibles will actually say, in the beginning, the gods created. Because it's plural. Well, that sounds like polytheism. 
Remember, this is written to the Hebrews. For everyone, but to the Hebrews. So let's look at Jewish thought. We need to address the Hebrew use of the plural. In Isaiah 45, God gives his resume to Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was a twinkle in his dad's eye. In that, God says multiple times that I am the one, I am the only. He also says that I am the Savior, I am the Redeemer. He says that I am the El, singular, and I am the Elohim, plural. Some try to make this out to be evidence of the Trinity. But we're looking at the Jewish scriptures written to the Jews who God repeatedly says, I am the only one. Not we are. I am. God told them I am one. There is only one. There is no other but me. Do not try to put a 4th century Christian doctrine on ancient Jewish scriptures. The Trinitarian doctrine is an invention of the 4th century. The Trinitarian doctrine is not... Some people say it started the Nicene Creed. It absolutely did not. As a matter of fact, the big argument at the Council of Nicaea was, was between Arius, who was a, really a subordinationist, who believed that Jesus was the highest created being and subordinate to the Father, that he was not actually God. And then you get Athanasius that championed the idea that Jesus was divine, that he was both man and God. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about the theories of Yeshua in a later episode. And it's going to be a deep-end episode because it's, it is mind-bending what everybody believed. There was more than one way to look at at Yeshua and exactly his relationship with God. And it's really it's really something everyone should hear, but they won't teach it in churches because most churches adhere to Trinitarian theology and so as they so they won't they won't do anything to gainsay the Trinitarian view. But you have to understand that the Trinitarian view did not come about until the three hundreds of the fourth century. At the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius did not argue for a Trinity. He argued that Jesus was both man and God. And if you read the original Nicene Creed, it says that God the Father and God the, and, and, and Yeshua, that God the Father and Jesus were in a state of homoousius. That was the term that was used. Interestingly, that term was proposed by Emperor Constantine, who was a pagan, by the way. He was a sun worshiper. He didn't get baptized until much later. And actually, he was not baptized by an Athanasian believer in the divinity of Christ. He was baptized by one of the people that followed Arius. Arius gets banished after the Council of Nicaea and then brought back. And actually, it's an Arian. It was one of the, uh, it was, uh, I can't remember which Eusebius it was, that baptized Constantine. But he actually gets baptized by an Arian, a follower of Arius. Okay? Which is interesting. Now, understanding that, and understanding that the Council of Nicaea was there to decide on the divinity of Christ, when you look at the original Council of Nicaea's 
creed, you then notice that it says we believe in God the Father, we believe in Jesus, His only Son, that, that He you know, is of the same substance, that's what homoousius means, of the same substance as God, and oh yeah, we believe in a Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not included. The Holy Spirit was not viewed at the Council of Nicaea as being part of the Godhead. This Trinity does not come into being formally in any way until years later at the Constantinopolitan Creed. And then later it's affirmed again in something called the Athanasian Creed made years after Athanasius died. It has nothing to do with Athanasius except it holds his name to try to give it weight and authority. But it doesn't even talk about what Athanasius believed. It talks about a trinity, which Athanasius did not believe in a trinity. He just believed that Jesus was both God and man. So understand this, that Trinitarianism did not come in until the fourth century. You cannot use a Trinitarian view and impose it on Hebrew scriptures written to a monotheistic, monopersonality worshiping group. They believe that it's one God with one personality. Trinitarianism tries to say that you have one God, multiple personalities. That's how it's described. Multiple in person, singular in substance. People don't like you to put it in the terms I just put it in. But that's exactly what it means. The Trinitarian doctrine is that the Trinity is one substance. They are of one substance. They're one God, but they're multiple in person is the way it was originally explained. We would say God has multiple personalities. People don't like you to say that because it sounds too much like dissociative identity disorder, which they used to call multiple personality disorder, the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome. That's, that's what the image of multiple personality conjures in people's heads. And so people don't like to call it that. But that's exactly what is described by Trinitarian doctrine. And the Jews flatly would have rejected this. Understand this. I'm not taking a side. I'm just telling you from the Jewish perspective. They would have flatly rejected Trinitarian theology. So don't read this as Trinitarian theology. It will make you err very quickly. In Hebrew thought, this is what we have to understand. In Hebrew thought, a name is not just a way of identifying a person. It's a window into their essence. And God is so great that one name is not enough. Each name of God is like a drape on a window. And when you learn one name of God, you pull back a drape and you see a little more of the glow and the glory of God behind it. Each name of God you learn takes you closer to seeing more of God. This is why God never really answers Moses when Moses asks his name. In the end, God says, I am. Note he doesn't say we are. He says, I am, singular. God's name, we're told in Jewish thought, is such a multiplicity that Moses would never have understood it. And so God says, I am. I am that I am. Now, Elohim is the most common name used. It's used about 32 times in the first chapter of Genesis and over 2,500 times in the First Testament, uh, if, and that's Masoretic. Interestingly, the book of Esther, as an aside, 
never mentions God a single time in the Masoretic version. God is mentioned over 50 times in the, in the longer Septuagint version. So there you go. The word Elohim, though, is plural in form, but it always takes, when applied to the God of Abraham, a singular verb. Whenever it's used to refer to pagan gods, Elohim takes a plural verb. But when it refers to the one God of Israel, it's always a plural noun, Elohim, paired to a singular verb. It's like saying something like this. God's is speaking to Samuel. Instead of God's are, it would be like God's is speaking to Samuel. It is absolutely dreadful English, but it's actually good Hebrew. And the reason is there's an ancient concept called a plural of totality or a plural of majesty. It's a concept that something is all-encompassing or that it encompasses all things. English has a remnant of this plural of totality, and the English teachers are going to start pulling out their hair when I say this. But that's okay, let them. I'll explain myself. The word everything is by its nature plural. It is everything, all things. Now, English teachers will try to explain that the singular verb it takes is because everything means every single thing. But that ignores the grammatical rule in English that if you have a list of singular things joined by an inclusive conjunction, it takes a plural verb. For example, a dog, a cat, and a turtle is in the yard or are in the yard? Are in the yard. Each singular is additive because of the conjunction and. A dog, a cat, and a turtle are in the yard, not is in the yard. If it was an or statement, it would be a singular verb. Thus, the concept of every single thing together is a concept of every single thing linked by an implicit and and taken together. This is a plural concept. But have you ever heard anybody say everything are out there? No, it just sounds weird. Everything are out there. No. Everything is out there. That is a plural concept of totality. Now, English teachers can argue this because English doesn't have a very strong history of a plural of totality, though there were some ancient Germanic languages that seem to have had something like this. But they can't argue about it in Hebrew, because in Hebrew it is absolutely a grammatical construct. Okay? This use of Elohim basically, basically can be thought of in two ways. It can be thought of as a plural of majesty that conveys his complete majesty, power, sovereignty, and excellence. Or, if you look at it in relation to the Hebrews with their pagan neighbors, think of it like this. The pagans had pantheons. They were polytheists that had these pantheons that had multiple gods. Each god had his own set of powers, his own authority, his own glory, or hers, because there were also goddesses, right? So they also had these goddesses that had their own powers, her own glory, her own, you know, sort of bailiwick and domain of things. 
The plural of totality for the Hebrew God is like saying our God is one, but he is all of your gods, all of their powers, all of their authorities, and all of their glories, and the bag of chips, all in one. That's what the plural of totality means. And so Elohim, in the Jewish thought, carries the connotation and the context of the all-encompassing one God, or the one God that is all. Therefore, what we see in Genesis is a huge mistranslation of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and that is not correct. The connotation and context true translation is this. In the absolute beginning, the all-encompassing one God created from nothing the heaven and the earth. Yeah. Gets wordy, but that's the connotation of the Hebrew. So, that gets us in to Genesis 1, verse 1. So, I'll, conclu I'll conclude our talk tonight by saying that we introduced dimensionality issues. We talked about the nature of reality and the nature of time. We are now getting into the text. We, we cleared up the translation of the text because the text does not get translated according to the Hebrew connotations. And we cleared up some issues regarding timeline that apparently there is a creation of heaven and the earth before day one starts because we're told that the angels in Job cheered as God crea created during the creation week. And when we come into the next episode, we'll deal with day one. We'll look at what Erev and Bokor actually mean. It's translated as evening and morning, but it doesn't actually mean that. We'll look at the devil and when he fell and what kind of entity he is. He's not an archangel. He's not an archangel. The scripture tells us what he is. He's not an archangel. And we'll look at why the earth was ruined and void in verse 2. The scripture actually lets us in on why the earth becomes ruined and void. Why it becomes, not was, it becomes. And we'll look at the gap theory and then move on to the creation of light and some of the ramifications of that. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I know it was a long one. These are our deep end episodes. But if you've enjoyed them, I hope you'll tune back in for more of the deep end episodes. So may the peace of God be upon you. May God make his face to shine upon you. May he bless you, love you, keep you. May the peace of God wash over you in the name of Yeshua. Good night.